With this Sunday, we have firmly entered the Sundays in ordinary time, the green season. And as I always say at the beginning, at least of every green season, the readings are for the next 25 or 6 weeks about the cost, the ways and the means, and the necessity for Christian discipleship. And in your bulletin, we have reproduced Vicki Black's uh, section on the Sundays in Ordinary Time, uh, every, and every week we'll have them there. Our, it's a, this season is about our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another through our prayers, the sacraments and life in the body of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the church and its mission. So this is the season par excellence where we need in the preaching of the church to talk about the readings we hear and to understand something about what is called in maybe exalted circles the history of interpretation. We have two readings today, one from Genesis and one from the Gospel according to St. Mark, which in some way are connected but it is necessary to apply my teacher O.C. Edwards' words to these readings. It is not as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And so I'm going to preach about Genesis, the story of, or part of the story of Adam and Eve, and then Jesus in one of Mark's conflated texts where he puts about three or four different uh, sayings of Jesus together to make a point uh, that in some sense is made in uh, Genesis. But here's what I mean. The story we read in the book of Genesis does not mean what in the history of interpretation people have said it did mean, both in Judaism and in Christianity, by the time of the writing of the book of Wisdom. This is a story about how human beings come into self-consciousness and how we understand the way things are. Why do people wear clothes and feel shame? Why does a snake crawl on its stomach and eat dust and seems to be hostile to human beings? Why is there... Uh, the tendency among human beings to give in to temptation. And how are we going to make sense of that? And by the time of the writing of the Book of Wisdom, the snake or the serpent, which is not in the original text about the devil or evil, becomes the source of evil in the world. And so we begin now to take this over in Christianity and to say the same thing. So Satan, the devil, be easable, these are all synonymous with the snake. Story is Adam's in the garden. God is walking in the garden during the cool evening breeze. So if you really want to amaze your friends, you can say that this particular version of the creation story comes from the J source, the Yahwist source. 
God is anthropomorphized. Right? He's like a man. And he's walking around in the garden. This particular God is going to be there when Noah builds the ark and fills it with all the animals and then he will come and shut the door. So God is walking in the garden during the evening breeze and he hears Adam rustling around and he said, why are you hiding? And he said, I'm hiding because I'm naked and I'm afraid. And God says to him, who told you you were naked? And he said, have you been eating from the tree, the forbidden tree? And he says, well, I don't know. The woman uh, gave me this fruit to eat and I ate it. You know, there are a lot of Christians that believe women damned the whole human race. (laughs) You know, that's what they believe. When I was in seminary, I read a book by a man named George Tavard. And the title of the book was Woman in Christian Tradition. This will be interesting because George Tavard uh, was a Roman Catholic priest. He died recently. He was a member of the Roman Catholic religious order that John Henry Newman made his submission to Rome through in Oxford in 1845, the Assumptionists. So George Tavard wrote an exhaustive introduction in this book uh, to the creation stories and to the Adam and Eve story. And the only line I'm going to share with you that I remember clearly is one that is stuck in my mind now nearly 40 years. And that is, it would be a pusillanimous tempter indeed to have tempted the weakest link in the chain. It's a great line. I don't know why this popped into my head. Have any of you ever seen, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Homer updated to the Great Depression in the South. And one of George Clooney's pals says in some town when somebody was talking to one of their friends they hadn't seen for a long time, he said to him, why we even got thrown out of the Woolworth. And the other partner to George Clooney said, was it just the one or was it the whole chain? little bargaining going on already, maybe. We'll see. In any case, by the writing of the time of the Book of Wisdom, we have now the source of evil being the serpent. But one of the things that emerged from the original story and continues in the history of interpretation is this. Humanity will triumph ultimately over evil but we do not know how or when. And Christians will take this up and say that in 
Jesus Christ, in this man's works and in this man's words, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God, and more to the point, we have seen them uniquely focused in a human being. And this will now be the source of the triumph over evil in him. So early Christians are going to refer to this. Now hold on. You might want to keep this too and just have people faint dead away. This was called the Proto-Evangelium. The first preaching of the gospel in the Bible. In the book of Genesis. When I was, uh, many years ago now, I took a class uh, on marriage counseling at CDSP. And it was taught by uh, Charles Taylor, who was the professor of pastoral theology then. And he went around the room one day and he was pointing to all the people there. They were all clergy. And he said, where did you go to seminary? And I said, well, I, I went to Neshota House. And he paused and he said, well, I guess you know all about the Proto-Evangelium. <laughs> so I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do know about the Proto-Evangelium. Right? Yeah. Now, this is going to be taken up. The reason I'm doing this is because this is what will be taken up in the Gospels. And what Mark is going to take up about the fact that humanity will triumph over evil. So in Mark's gospel, we have several things sandwiched together. First of all, we have his parents ner nervous and worried and upset because people have said he's lost his mind. We have him then engaged in a controversy with the scribes over Beezable and what his power, the source of his power is. And then we have a statement by him about who his family is. And before that, we have a troubling section, which may be the center of what I want to speak about here. And that is what constitutes the unforgivable sin. And in this gospel, it, Jesus says it is the sin against the Holy Spirit. I hope this won't embarrass him, but Mark, Bruce, and I always meet during the week before Sunday, and we were having a conversation about this. He gave me an idea, which is why I'm talking about this now. He, he told me about, reminded me of people who come from a tradition or traditions within Christianity who spend a lot of time worrying about whether they have committed a sin against the Holy Spirit unwittingly. That maybe something in their life, their past life, the, the way in which they're thinking thoughts, doing, they have committed the sin against the Holy Ghost. And now they are in big trouble and plenty of it, and they don't even know it. Maybe some of you come from a tradition like that, where we're worried about this. All blasphemies and sins are forgiven, except against the sin against the Holy Spirit. 
Dr. Reginald Fuller, one of the great New Testament scholars of the 20th century, uh, wrote this about this particular passage. I'm going to read it to you, and I hope it's not too dense. Tacked on to the beeasable controversy is the very difficult saying about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, a saying that has played a somewhat macabre role in the history of Christian piety. People have had fantastic ideas that they have somehow inadvertently committed this unforgivable sin and that in so doing they have condemned themselves unwittingly to everlasting damnation. Our text has nothing to do with such fantasies, nor does it, as more recent exegetes interpreters have often contended, that the general meaning of the text is purely calling evil good and good evil. Rather, it has to do quite specifically with Jesus' exorcisms and his implicit Christological claim, who he is. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to fail to see that Jesus' works are the acts of the eschatological saving power of God at work in his person. This means that Jesus took himself very seriously. And so should we. But with regard to the history of interpretation, our focus needs to be on God's proper work and on the Genesis text and why it's there as the first reading that humanity will triumph over evil and we do not yet know how, but we do know that we are part of this process and that God needs us for this work. In the Middle Ages, God's judgment was referred to as his opus alienum, his strange work. And God's mercy was understood as his opus proprium, his proper work. And Christians have concluded in the history of interpretation that when God's mercy and God's judgment collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. And it is by that process that we begin to understand what our vocation is. This past Thursday, in uh, the Roman Catholic Church and in many Episcopal churches and Anglican churches throughout the world, we celebrate Corpus Christi, which for many of you may be a nosebleed high festival, but it is about the body of Christ, the importance of the Eucharist, the centrality of the Eucharist. And I mention this because it's going to connect now to what Jesus says about who is my mother and my father and my brother and my sister? If any of you have gone through a vocational crisis where you have had to make a decision 
about what you believe God was calling you to do or the direction your life ought to take or some increase of self-consciousness and self-awareness about who you are and what you should be doing and you have made a decision to do that and your family does not like it, you know what this text means. I don't have to explain it to you. But why this is important is that Jesus is getting at this. We need to begin to understand that the kinship altruism that we practice amongst those closest to us in our nuclear family, that is to say, living up to your responsibilities with regard to how you look after your family and how you have the kind of mutual care and compatibility that we wish to have, and how you were able in some way to step outside that kinship altruism and bring the values of that kinship altruism to everyone else and to be an instrument of that transformation in the world. That's what I mean when I say we should be concerned about creating a world where it is easier for people to be good. So when we celebrate the festival of the body of Christ, I need to quote my teacher, Lewis Weil, who uh, gets irritated when we have people, Eucharistic ministers and clergy administer the Holy Communion and place the body of Christ in somebody's hand and say, This is the body of Christ. And he taught us, No, this is the body of Christ, of which this is the sacramental sign. And in this gospel today, Jesus is talking about how to be the body of Christ in the world and to have the right construct about what constitutes family and to understand that you and I should be careful about speaking ill of all the values that are the highest and the best with regard to our humanity and how we might fulfill that godly vocation that we're all called to. So this week, think about what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. Remember that when God's mercy and God's judgment collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. There's a whole lot of Christianity around that says that isn't true and you and I ought to be living in perpetual anxiousness about that reality. But the Savior of the world prefers to tell us that God's uh, unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And on this Sunday, we're reminded of that great and powerful truth. Amen.